Um, this morning, we are going back into the book of Genesis, and we will be starting uh, at chapter 16. And so I will read the entire chapter to you this morning. Chapter 16 of Genesis. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Laheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's a fun passage this morning, isn't it? <laughs> uh, my beautiful wife, Caitlin, pointed out to me that I messed up one of the announcements, so I thought I should clarify that now. Regardless of my ability to keep time, the next week is not January 10th, so Sunday school will not be starting next week. Sunday school will be starting January 10th, which is in two weeks. There we go. All right. 
My name is David Buving. I'm the youth and worship director here, and I'll be preaching for you this morning. On Monday morning of this week, uh, at the beginning of the week, um, I took a short walk with my family, and the weather was really fantastic for a mid-December day. It was blue skies, sun everywhere. It was really gorgeous out. There were, you know, a few clouds in the sky, but it really just added to the, like, the picturesque beauty of what was out there. We came home, and I spent most of the day dissecting this passage that we just read together, working through it, figuring out what, what all is going on in here. And as I sat at my desk working, look out the window, and really shocked at how sunny the day had turned out to be. I finished up most of my studying around 4 o'clock in the afternoon and decided um, I would take a little walk, pray, meditate on the passage before I got started working uh, on constructing a sermon. It was a little bit windy and the clouds were moving in, so I threw on a jacket and headed off towards Pine Street from our house. About 25 minutes into my walk, I walked through a little cul-de-sac and headed up to the old logging trail, and it started to rain lightly, so I thought, well, I'll head back home. I don't want to get caught in a downpour. About 30 seconds later, as I'm walking past the <laughs> industrial steel complex right there uh, by 4th Street, uh, the rain started dumping more intensely than I have ever experienced <laughs> while being outdoors before, and the wind was blowing directly at me at a pretty fast pace, meaning the amount of water being pushed into my face. Um, it was rough, and it really didn't let up until I got back to like Trost Elementary, which is near our house. Uh, my shoes, my jacket, my pants all literally weighed pounds more because of how much water they had absorbed. <laughs> and it might not sound like it, but it was actually kind of a cool experience, and I, I do love Oregon weather. And then Tuesday morning, get out of bed, and the sun's back out, and it's just nice, you know. Genesis 15, 16, and 17 are kind of like that. Right, this passage, this morning that we read, if we're actually like listening to what was said, uh, is absolutely shocking and appalling. And it comes smack dab in the middle of Abram having two of the most incredible experiences with God that a man could hope to have. Abram's faithfulness in this story looks just about as predictable as Oregon weather. But what we see from God in the midst of this story is going to be incredibly good news for us today. The story opens up and there's a few crucial details. Sarai is still without a child. And Sarai has a female slave that they probably picked up during their time in Egypt, whose name is Hagar. It's been 10 years since God called them to Canaan and promised them descendants, a multitude of descendants. And at that time, people did live a little longer, but still Sarai's 65. That would have been a really rough age to still not have a child. It would have been devastating for her. For her, having children would have been deeply uh, a deep part of her identity and her worth. Um, in today's culture, there's seen some advantages of not having children. Maybe, right, you might be able to pursue a career differently, or you might have more free time. There's, there may be these advantages, but for someone in Sarai's day, there would have been no like silver lining, no positive note. This was just a difficult, sad 
thing. The idea of being 65 and without children would no doubt have led her to despair. Not only did she desperately want to have children, but God had promised her husband a multitude of descendants. And Sarah is pretty smart. You know, she, she recognizes that she's not going to be able to have descendants like the stars of heaven if she can't even have one kid. The despair packed into these first few words of chapter 16 are intense. And then, innocently enough, it seems, it mentions that Sarai has a female slave from their time in Egypt. Then Sarai speaks, and the matter becomes much more clear. Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children from her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The Lord has prevented me. And right here at the very beginning of verse 2, we see Sarai falling into the same exact trap as Eve does in Genesis 3. (laughs) I thought that might happen. (laughs) Sarai falls into the same exact trap. She says, it is the Lord who has withheld good things from me. It's the Lord who's withheld good things from me. And while there is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in this situation that's true enough, it's clear from how she continues that this is not a moment of her dwelling on the sovereignty of God and cherishing the sovereignty of God, but rather a moment in which she's trying to usurp it. She says, God promised this to me, and he has not come through on his promise, therefore we must accomplish this by any means possible. And just like Adam stood by passively while Eve took the fruit and shared some, Abram falls in the same trap. Uh, it says in verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and that's it's just an idiom for Abram obeyed his wife. Abram, the one to whom the promise was given obeys his wife rather than obeying God. After 10 years of waiting, Abram gives in. Instead of continuing to wait upon the Lord, Abram and his wife turn to the culturally acceptable methods of their day to solve the problem. Just like Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took it, Sarai sees that her plan is good and she takes her female servant And gives it to her husband. This would have been standard process in the ancient Near East to handle the problem of barrenness. um, To take a slave and use her to procure a child that you would raise as your own. The verse tells us, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So plain and simple. Just taking care of business. Solving the problems that God can't seem to solve. And just like Lamech of Genesis 4, Abram takes two wives. Lamech, if you remember, is the descendant of Cain who uh, kills a child for injuring him. Lamech's the man who demands that his wives listen as he glories in 
his power and his violence, which he says are far greater than Cain's ever were. At this point in the story of Genesis, that's the only other person we have to compare to with this idea of having two wives. It's clear from the story this is not a good idea. It's clear that Abram is not following the path that Yahweh has laid out for him. And as is the case, whenever humanity steps outside of God's design, Abram's life falls into upheaval. Hagar, the Egyptian slave turned wife, quickly conceives a child from Abram. And her status changes. Her oppression turns and she makes it clear to Sarai that she is now a mother and Sarai is not. Hagar claims a place of power and shows Sarai that it is her who is weak. She robs Sarai of any honor that she may have. She makes the fact that she was able to conceive with Sarai's husband very clear, while Sarai remains barren and by her cultural standards, near worthless. And Sarai is angry. How could this have turned out this way? How could her plan have backfired so badly? And just like Adam and Eve, she turns to blame to solve the problems. Abram, it was you who did this. Sarah says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. God knows the truth. It's because of your sin that I am afflicted, Abram. God will judge and show that I am right. <laughs> and it just gets worse. And it <laughs> Just like his father, Abram, uh, father Adam, Abram again fails to lead. He fails to deal with the sin that he allowed into his life and into the life of his family to deal with the ways that he strayed from God's clear design and brought trouble upon his family. He fails to care for the woman that he used, and instead, following the customs of his day, he returns Hagar to the status of a slave. He says, she's your problem, do whatever you want with her. And now Hagar's oppression intensifies. Hagar, the woman Abram used. Sarai, hot with anger, does everything she can to show Hagar her place. Slave girl. Not a real member of the family. You're not an actual wife of Abram. You're just a tool, and you would do well to remember that. She treats Hagar so harshly that Hagar eventually takes off running to her homeland, Egypt. A journey that would have been treacherous even if she hadn't been pregnant and completely alone. And throughout every exchange that Abram and Sarai have here, they never acknowledge her personhood. They never once refer to her by name. To them, she's just the servant girl. A frustrating but necessary tool in their plan to bring about God's promises in their life. Abram and Sarai are quickly learning the lesson that when we try to bring about God's promises through ungodly means, it leads to disaster. When we try to bring about God's promises through ungodly means, it leads to disaster. 
The concept that the ends justify the means is simply not compatible with Christian worldview. And maybe your initial reaction as you read this story is like, wow, I would never do anything like that. I can't even imagine how anything in my life could possibly compare to that story. And I'll give you, it is a crazy story. But in the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The reality is that every single thing that Abram and Sarai do in this story is not only completely culturally acceptable, it's actually well within the legal requirements of their day. In fact, Law 146 of the Code of Hammurabi stipulates that if a concubine claims equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may demote her to her former status. They're just doing what everybody else was doing. How often do we look at the promises of heaven and work desperately to accomplish them here on earth regardless of the means that we use? How often do we, knowing that God is good, work to define and accomplish our own good rather than trusting that God will bring about good through our circumstances? Maybe for you, it's your money or your material things is a way through which you can accomplish God's promises in your life, right? John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And we long for that kind of peace, right? But are we trusting God to provide it? Or do we... Uh, maybe work endless hours at a job neglecting our family to store up money so that we can be at peace. If only my bank account is at a certain level or my retirement account is fully set, as long as I have enough, then I will be at peace. Or, or maybe we imagine if I just had that one thing, life would be okay. Since moving to Oregon and enjoying the crazy weather and the beautiful outdoors, um, I've really wanted to buy a nice trailer so that we could camp year-round without worrying about the rain or other crazy weather that comes our way. And I, I'm shocked, like honestly, as I drive around Canby, it feels like every other house has <laughs> a trailer parked out front. And if I'm not careful, it's easy for the lie to slip into my mind that if you just buy this one thing, you'll finally be at peace. If you get that trailer, for me, it's not going to be the same thing for everybody. If you get that trailer, you know, like everyone else has one. If you get that, you'll be able to step away from the stress of life, rest in God's beautiful creation. Life will become more enjoyable. You deserve it. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with me owning a trailer or wanting a trailer, if I see this as my opportunity for true peace, it's taking a place that only Jesus deserves to have in my life. And if it becomes so essential to me that I'm willing to go into debt to try to accomplish my heaven now, am I not falling into the same trap as Abram? Got to have the things to make my life good. 
What is it in your life? How do you work to accomplish God's promises in your life? Maybe it's not finances or material things for you. Maybe it's love. Uh, Maybe you refuse to follow God's design regarding sex and its position being only in a lifetime marriage between a man and a woman. Maybe you're so confident that your happiness depends on you not following God's sexual ethic, that you give yourself a free pass because obviously God wants us to be happy, right? Or maybe it's your politics. As long as my leader is in charge, everything will be okay. As long as Trump is president or as long as anyone but Trump is president, I can be at peace. What lengths are you willing to go to in order to accomplish your political goals? Do, I, do we give ourselves a free pass on Jesus' very clear and distinct commandment to love our enemies when it comes to politics? Do we demonize other human beings made in the image of God? Are we willing to destroy unity within Christ's own body for the sake of accomplishing some sort of political rightness here on earth? If your political party or leader holds that kind of sway in your life, then you're committing the same sin as Abram and Sarai. Whatever your preferred flavor of idolatry, it will lead to disaster as we move away from God's design and justify our actions, saying the ends justify the means. The reality is that our culture often holds far too much influence in our lives. These are just a couple examples, and um, it really should make us uncomfortable because idolatry is a serious thing. This this is not a comfortable conversation. (laughs) I'll say that right now. Idolatry is a big deal, and it's really easy to let these things slip in, gain a hold in our life, and to not critically examine every piece through. Is this what culture said okay? It's what God's Word says is okay. But the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar doesn't end there, and it doesn't end here for us either, which is good news. keep reading. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. Hagar is running like mad, and she's actually made it most of the way from Canaan to her homeland, Egypt. She rests at a well near Shur, which would have been right on the northeastern border of Egypt. And the angel of the Lord appears to her. Who is the angel of the Lord? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, and not everyone agrees, but many people, myself included, believe that when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus. As in Jesus, the Word of God, eternally existing as part of the Trinity, before he was born to Mary. And a few of the reasons would be that when the angel of the Lord appears on the scene, like, shocking things happen. Like, he, he, makes, <laughs> he makes stuff happen. And he speaks with an authority that really only belongs to God. When people encounter the angel of the Lord, they often recount those experiences and refer to him as God. 
We'll see in our own story that takes place. In our story, after speaking with the angel of the Lord, Hagar later refers to him as God. So Hagar's lowest moment, right? She's pregnant and alone in the wilderness, away from her family, away from people who she has lived with for the past 10 years. Let that sink in. It's hard to imagine a more sorrowful, fearful, horrifying place to find yourself. And in that moment, the angel of Yahweh meets her. And as he meets her, he's the first character in the story that acknowledges her personhood and calls her by her name. Abram and Sarai never refer to her as Hagar. She's the servant. The first words out of the angel of the Lord's mouth is Hagar. I can only imagine the emotion that she must have felt in that moment. She is known. And then he asks her a question. He doesn't come at her with some grand speech or rebuke. He simply asks her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she responds in honesty. In the next few verses, the angel of the Lord speaks to her, guiding her, blessing her, warning her. And unlike Abram in this story, Hagar submits to the Lord. In what seems like a strange request to us, he tells her, return. Return to your mistress and submit to her. But then he makes the same promise to Hagar, the Egyptian slave, that Abram and Sarai don't even bother to acknowledge. He makes the same promise to her as he made to Abram. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And he continues and he gives another promise that shockingly sounds a lot like the birth promises of a lot of important people in the Bible, even Jesus. Verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God is inviting this outsider into his people to be a part of his family. Meets the oppressed where they are. He cares for them. He loves the outcast. His mercy and compassion shine regardless of who the people are that he's showing it to. Ishmael. Ishmael. His name literally means God hears. His name will be a constant reminder of who. Her God is the God who met her in her distress. <laughs> Even when she yells his name in frustration, she'll literally be preaching to herself, reminding herself of the God she met at Shur. The God who hears. But God is clear that while she is heard and she is loved, her child is not the promised seed of Abram. In fact, the child who is born due to the plans of Abram and Sarai to get around God will actually continue to result 
in pain. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. Abram will not be a man, or sorry, Ishmael will not be a man who brings peace like the promised seed of Abram. No, the sins of Abram and Sarai will continue to haunt them, not only for hundreds of years, but even up until this very day. The Arab nations that are in constant conflict with Israel, even to this day, the offspring of Ishmael. When we step outside of God's design and try to use worldly means to accomplish our promises, our sins have real-world consequences, and we often don't know what they're going to be until it is far too late. Hagar responds to this experience by turning to Yahweh, by turning away from the gods of her family to the God of Abram. Turning away from the idols who cannot see her to the one true God, the one who does see her. And she acknowledges him as the God of sea. Because she has been looked after by God. And she names the well, the place where all this takes place, the well of the living one who sees me. In this story, Hagar's faith stands in stark contrast to Abram and Sarai, but the story isn't over. Hagar submits to the Lord. She returns to Abram and Sarai and tells them of the encounter that she had with God. And while there will continue to be conflict, Abram believes her, it seems. Abram names his son Ishmael. That would have been something that the father would have chosen. So for him to do that, that shows that he truly did believe her story. Abram names his son Ishmael. And then as we get into next week's story, we'll see that God continues to show his faithfulness. In the midst of God's, sorry, in the midst of Abram's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness continues. God's plans and designs, God's way of working in our life, God's promises aren't upset by ours. We, we bring trouble upon ourselves, but we don't break God's plans. God's compassion and mercy continue to shine through, even in the midst of people's sin and unfaithfulness. The beauty of this story is that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The, the unfortunate news this morning is that if we're going to be honest and actually take this seriously, we probably look a lot more like Abram and Sarai than we want to admit. But the great news that is far, far better than the bad news, is that God's grace is for us just as much as it was for Hagar and Sarai and Abraham. Even when we are not faithful, God is faithful. Caitlin showed me a quote uh, from another pastor that I thought perfectly captures this in the context of Advent and Christmas. 
says, the good news of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting, because we often are not, but that God is faithful in his coming. Jeff highlighted so well for us last week the fact that we, we simply aren't God, we don't know his timelines, and it is foolish of us to try to judge his timelines. God does not abide by our desires God's goals are not the same as ours, and that's good news. So we wait, eagerly anticipating the return of the king. Here's the promise we all long to see fulfilled. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I gave from the spring of water of life without payment. But for now we wait patiently. As we come out of the season of Advent that is all about waiting, we can't just move on. We we, we may not grow weary of waiting. As we are here, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And we do work to bring about His will on earth, but we do it while working within His design, within His kingdom, within His rule. Let us be people who reject the world's solutions of reaching for whatever will satisfy us in the moment, or allowing ourselves to be caught up in the anger and paranoia and hatred that surrounds us. Let us be people who are marked by our King and look like our King. If anything pulls you away from that goal, repent, reject it, and turn to Jesus, the author of and perfecter of your faith. Even when we are not faithful, He is faithful. Let us be people who wait with hope and patience for the coming of our King. Heavenly Father, we wait. We, we long We long for that new heaven and that new earth. We long for the day when God's dwelling is in our midst and He is our God. 
We, we long to experience that. We long for pain and death and sorrow and arguing and conflict. We long for the day when that is a thing of the past. 